Welcome to Wisconsin DNR's Wild Wisconsin Off the Record Podcast. Information straight from the source. to another episode of the Wild Wisconsin Off the Record podcast. So as a reminder, this gives us an opportunity as DNR staff to give you guys an inside look at some of the work we do, whether you hunt, fish, hike, camp, some of the things that we're doing on the landscape and in the office to kind of improve your time in the outdoors, like I said, kind of no matter what activities you're into. So we've got a cool one today. So whether you like the duck hunt, spend time on the water, uh, wildlife viewing, wildlife photography, chances are you've seen quite a few ducks in your time. So we are joined today by Taylor Finger, the DNR Migratory Game Bird Ecologist, and also Trenton Rohrer, the Assistant Migratory Game Bird Ecologist. So we're going to give you an overview of migratory birds in Wisconsin, uh, kind of from their history, where we are today, what hunting looks like, uh, maybe some of the other opportunities like wildlife viewing. So uh, why don't we just get started? We'll start with you, Taylor. So DNR, Migratory Game Bird Ecologist. So what is that? Uh, why do you enjoy it? Well, what's the importance of your work? And I mean, how's it all connect for you? So again, my responsibilities as the statewide migratory game bird ecologist is to manage both populations of these you know, ducks, geese, swans, sandhill cranes, um, these migratory birds that are hunting public can take advantage of, um, particularly with sandhill cranes and swans, we don't necessarily hunt them, but they are hunted in other states, so they do fall into my responsibility. But other than managing populations, we also have to manage our hunters and our hunter desires in these hunting seasons uh, across the board. So I work at both a local and a national scale to uh, represent these populations um, at a national scale. I represent Wisconsin on the Mississippi Flyway Technical Committee, which is a committee made up of 14 states and three Canadian provinces within the Mississippi Flyway. And it's it's a group of individuals that get together and represent the hunting interests, the population, the management interests of all of these species because it's a shared resource and we want to manage them equally so we can enjoy it for future years. At a local scale, I work with our... Uh, we work, I work with Ducks Unlimited, Wisconsin Waterfowl Association, Wisconsin Wildlife Federation, the Conservation Congress to, uh, to, to manage, again, manage these resources so that people into the future, we can hunt them, we can view them, we'll have them for here in perpetuity, and we're, again, trying to manage them to the best of our abilities. So, Trenton, let's go to you now. So... What do you do? Why do you enjoy it? Uh, kind of, how's it all connect for you? Yeah, so um, I actually just graduated about a year ago. I've been with the department for about a year. Um, I'm the public contact um, for the DNR on anything migratory bird related. Um, I handle uh, when we're getting ready to uh, collect comments for the next waterfowl season. That's a big um, part of my job during the, the spring is collect 
um, all that information. I also do a lot of housing and consolidating of data that we collect. Uh, I work with biologists and technicians throughout the state, coordinating spring surveys, uh, the midwinter waterfowl surveys, dove field management, uh, and then goose dove duck banding. Um, and I also, if anyone's interested out there that wants to be a part of that, I uh, coordinate volunteers for those programs, uh, the duck banding and the goose banding. And then fall biologist surveys, I send that out to uh, kind of, you know, I, Taylor and I uh, in Madison, we uh, try to get out as much as possible, but we can't be everywhere in the state at a time at one time. So um, we look to our biologists to kind of give us um, a glimpse into what's going on out there. So, so what's your connection to migratory birds in Wisconsin? Did you guys grow up hunting, um, wildlife viewing, anything like that? So we'll start with you, Taylor. So did you think you were going to be in a position like this, or kind of what got you interested in the wildlife field? It, it's absolutely a dream job. It's one of those things where I grew up carrying my decoy, my dad's decoy bag when I was 10 years old. I wasn't old enough to get out in the field yet, but held on to the dog and took the decoys out with him been hunting ever since and again I graduated from Stevens Point um, um, with a wildlife degree I got my master's degree in Ontario researching lesser scop putting satellite transmitters on them I've worked in New Jersey on black duck and brant research so everything that I've done is waterfowl related and then came to the department and worked in Trent's job as the assistant waterfowl or migratory bird assistant and fortunately enough I've now got to this point where I'm truly doing something that I'm passionate about and really enjoy. And I think you're going to hear that with both of these guys as we discuss most of this stuff is it's not just a job for them. They they leave work and they're they're scouting or they're going hunting or or they're talking to other duck hunters. So Trent, how about you? So uh, my dad wasn't a huge hunter. His dad was, but my dad never really got into it. I won a shotgun at a DU event. Um, when I was 12 and my dad said well you know you got this now we're gonna you know go through hunter safety and if you pick it up great if you don't it's not you know he didn't really care either way but he wanted me to at least have that opportunity um, so I started turkey hunting and then through high school I kind of you know dropped out because of a, uh, I was big into sports then. Not out of high school. You didn't drop out of no, high school. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so I dropped out of hunting and then uh, um, in college uh, I finally had a bunch of time um, when I wasn't in classes of course uh, to go out and uh, I was sitting down in the dorms one day and a bunch of buddies were talking about duck hunting and we went out, bought a dozen decoys and we were out in the marsh the next day and probably from that point on I you know got big into duck hunting and um, that's actually where my passion for you know waterfowl started I kind of knew that this was kind of the career path I wanted to take at that point and uh, here I am today and that's something we'll touch on a little later you mentioned you had decoys and the next day he was out hunting so I think it's really an accessible sport, and people may not realize that. So we'll we'll talk a bit about that, but I think that's a good primer for kind of where we're going to go. So you guys have touched on it a little bit, but something else we usually like to do in these podcasts is um, 
So you guys work primarily in the office. You do help with some survey work and other things like that. So what does a day in the life look like working as the migratory game bird ecologist and the assistant? So um, give people a look at kind of some of the important work that you're doing that has a direct impact on, on people who see waterfowl in the wild. Yeah, um, so I, some of the times I do actually get out, I do fly the spring waterfowl survey. I get up, I flew the whole northern half of the state over a week period just about a month ago. And what that does is, you know, captures how many breeding mallards that we have, how many breeding wood ducks. And we use Canada geese, blue-winged teal. We use that information to make management decisions at a local scale, also as a statewide management goal. So similar things, again, we do a fall survey. We did one last year on Green Bay to get an idea of how many hunters are actually out there doing layout bow hunting on Green Bay. Or what are the bird species composition out there? You know, how many got hundreds of thousands of birds sitting out on Green Bay and we don't really know a whole lot what's going on. So making those kind of decisions and making those kind of efforts is, is something that directly impacts our, our hunting public and our you know wildlife viewing public. Mm -hmm. And something else we'll touch on too and it comes up quite a bit is the intersection between sociology and biology when you're managing a game species. So we'll get into that too but I think an important thing to realize with, with both of these guys and what they do is um, I think it's safe to say just about every day at work you talk to at least one hunter or someone in one of those organizations. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, yep. yeah. So it's definitely keeping your finger on the pulse of, of kind of what's going on, and, and that's definitely a factor that goes into management as well. So why don't we just get into it then? So in Wisconsin, we're really lucky with the migratory game birds that we have. So can you guys give an overview of kind of which species are that we have in Wisconsin, maybe which are more common than others, and, and one that if maybe someone sees, they should be pretty excited because it might be a little more rare. Yeah, we're, as Wisconsin, we're kind of at the top of the top of our flyway, so we don't, you know, Louisiana, Arkansas, those states at the bottom of the flyway are seeing, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of birds that pile in from all over the country. We're at the top. We're the ones providing those birds that fly down there, so... Uh, and we're a little bit farther east. We don't have as the same, you know, nesting habitat quality that the Canadian prairies do, but one thing that Wisconsin does have is water, which is great. So we have quite a few mallards. Mallards are our most abundant breeding uh, duck. Wood ducks would be our second most abundant. Um, Blue-winged teal and then Canada geese are one of those ones that, you know, 40 years ago there was hardly any Canada geese in the state of Wisconsin, and now it's a really a success story. Similarly, trumpeter swans. We started a reintroduction. Our goal was to have 30 nesting pairs in the state. And last year, between Wisconsin, Michigan, and Minnesota, were over 30,000 birds. So truly a, a success story. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So when you say our habitat varies from, like, the Canadian prairies, and you, you mentioned water is a good thing. So what does Wisconsin have kind of that, that may draw those ducks in? So we have over 5 million acres of uh, wetlands. We have over 15,000 lakes. We have uh, Mississippi River on the west side, Lake Michigan and Green Bay on the east, uh, Lake Superior to our north. Horicon Marsh is the largest freshwater cattail marsh in the country. So it, it's one of those where no matter what, if it's dry out in areas where typically ducks would nest, Wisconsin's going to have water no matter what, which is great for them as a resource and it's also great for our hunters as you know there's so much hunting opportunity and public land opportunity for them to take advantage of. So having the 
the waterfall resources that we have obviously uh, comes with some pressure and a, and a lot of people kind of relying on you guys to to manage those those species so what tools do you guys have you mentioned the surveys and we're going to get into those a little bit a little bit later on but can you guys maybe give an example of uh, what tools that you have to to manage these species and I know there's a federal component here too that we'll get into but um, so how do you what tools do you guys have and how does that kind of interplay with working with the public to to manage these waterfowl species so as I said surveys is something that you know we look at to look at migration behavior look at species composition or breeding populations we also ban birds Wisconsin is one of the most active banding programs in the Mississippi Flyway. We banned 4,000 Canada geese, 4,000 mallards, over 1,500 wood ducks. So we use that information in order to look at harvest rates by species and by age and by sex. And that's what goes in at a federal level to determine how long our seasons can be and what our bag limits can be. So again, as, as Sawyer was saying, we we have a lot of federal obligations. Our seasons are set. Wisconsin, it's, it's not like deer hunting or turkey hunting in the state because they do migrate out we do rely on what other states do and what other Canadian provinces do so we have to fall within the guidelines that the Fish and Wildlife Service give us and that's what Trent and I do is we look at hunters we talk to hunters we have surveys we hold public meetings we're really working on a web page and social medias to to reach out to our hunters to say this is what we're allowed to do what do you guys want to do within this and that's, that's a, a theme that's going to keep coming up is the importance of knowing how you can submit comments, uh, give feedback. There are things like advisory committees and that type of thing. And certainly uh, being in groups like a Delta or a Ducks Unlimited, you can also play a super important role. And, and Taylor and, and Trent work with those guys quite a bit too. So, uh, so waterfowl hunting in Wisconsin, we've covered that pretty darn good amount of birds, um, pretty good mix of birds, both game and non-game. Uh, so can you guys maybe touch on, you mentioned Canada geese, that's really been a comeback story, but do you guys want to touch on maybe the history of waterfowl hunting in Wisconsin? Because certainly there are some some dark points, whether you, everyone's probably seen that picture of the, the punt gun, and that was about as long as two guys and, and things like that. So can you maybe touch on what the history just in general of, of waterfowl hunting looks like in Wisconsin? So yeah, we actually just celebrated the centennial of the Migratory Bird Treaty, um, which you know was the single most important legislation that happened at a federal level. You know, 100 years ago, we had market hunting that was a socially acceptable thing to do. And then when we decided that you know these birds are either some we hunted into extinction, all the way down to you know shooting swans, shooting cranes, ducks, we were losing all these populations, and a decision was made that this is. We had to stop doing that. Now let's fast forward to it at a, at a continental level. We have been at record high population um, for I think three of the last five years with regard to, to ducks um, and mostly you know mallards, blue-winged teal. Those are things that really have taken advantage of wet cycle out on the, the Canadian U.S. prairies. Um, but other things similarly, sandhill cranes. It's just we've seen an exponential growth in the eastern population of sandhill cranes, which what you know most people in Wisconsin see. So there, there are these awesome success stories that are happening right now. We, we, we talk about this. Uh, you know, everyone wants to say the good old days of duck hunting, and I'll leave, I'll throw wildlife viewing in there. Is 
this is the good old days. There are millions of birds out there, and they're very accessible. And the way that we're doing things now is much more conservation-oriented, much more management-oriented rather than resource-taking. And I think that's one of the most common misconceptions I hear as a hunter myself is people don't realize that hunting is a management tool. Yes, it's a fun hobby, it's a lifestyle for a lot of people, but on the science side of things, often that's one of the more important management tools that we have. So I think it's important to keep in perspective too as we keep talking about this. And I wanted to rewind just a little bit. So you mentioned the centennial of the migratory bird treaty. Treaty. So can you maybe just give a general overview of, of what that is and why it's so crucial? Right. So the Migratory Bird Treaty was, uh, again, legislation that said that there are going to be certain restrictions on the taking of all migratory birds. You can no longer collect feathers. You can no longer collect eggs. You can no longer take these birds out of a season, which at, a, at that point, you know, Department of Interior, now it's U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Essentially, all the hunting seasons are closed until opened by the Fish and Wildlife Service. So they make that decision every single year as part of the Migratory Bird Treaty with the U.S., uh, Canada, Mexico, and then Russia and Japan are in it as well. We, we have this agreement between all these entities that share this that we're going to manage these appropriately. And it has, as you can see, record high population numbers of these birds. It's working. And you mentioned kind of the onus for for everyone getting to the table was market hunting had a huge effect on that. Can you explain what market hunting means? It, it, was, uh, it was a taking of a resource to make money off of it. You know, it was birds, we, they would fill up boatloads full of canvasbacks and take them down to Chicago and they'd take them to a, uh, a restaurant and sell them, you know, buy a pair or buy a bull canvasback or no different than what we did with trapping where you they would collect the feathers off of cranes and whooping cranes they make hats of it so it was just a a large scale collection of these for sale which is now we don't sell migratory birds we it's a hunting it's a management process yeah and you know the other thing is um with uh market hunting is those are the pictures you were talking about earlier of piles upon piles of these boats filled with filled with birds you know, the piles of bison skulls, that, mm -hmm. that was that market hunting era, and that's kind of where, you know, the conservation, um, the, the hunter stepped up and said, you know what, this isn't, I'm seeing fewer and fewer ducks, bison, this isn't sustainable, we need to, we need to change something. And if, if you're interested in learning more about that, I'm just going to do a quick plug. Taylor had mentioned, I think, Horicon Marsh has the largest, is it largest cattail marsh in yep. In North America? Or? Yeah, in freshwater cattail marsh in the country. So there they have what they call the Explorium. So that'll give you a history of the marsh, but it also does a really good job uh, and shows some of those old photos of kind of outlining uh, market hunting and how that affected both the marsh and kind of the region. So if you want to learn more about that, be sure it's, it's at Horicon Marsh. It's at the Education Center. So be sure to check that out. But I think a good segue here is, so, I mean, this is probably going to be an easy question to answer just by default, but so how how has management changed in the past 100 years? So I guess you could argue that 100 years ago there might not have been any management, but so kind of are there are there visible steps we can see kind of the next progression of, of moving into management and how that's changed? 
as with anything, technology has come so far, you know, down the road of how are we estimating these populations? What's the technology that's going in? How are we tracking it? I'll bring up banding. We initially started banding these birds to look at migratory pathways. Now we can put a GPS locator or satellite tracker on these birds and can tell us where they are every hour for a year and look at you know how that how we manage wetland resources and stopover habitat because we know exactly why they're there, what they're there doing. Just the amount of research that has happened in the past 10 years is more than had occurred in the past 100 before that. So mm-hmm. it, it's definitely one of those things where people are passionate about ducks, whether they are, you know, hunters are passionate about it because they know that this is, this is something that is truly unique. And mm-hmm. it, they're not out there like, I want to shoot every single bird out there. It's the getting out in the marsh. It's just being outside, watching the sun come up, sitting next to your dog, sharing that experience with the family. It's no, no different than a person that's going out there with a camera trying to catch that same exact picture. I would agree that a, a duck hunter and a person taking a picture would love to see the same exact photo at the same exact time. Yep, absolutely. And that's another theme that we're going to keep touching on, so I think that's a great point. Um, is there is there something in particular, technology-wise, or a change in management that, that you're most excited about? We actually just had a conversation a few weeks ago about, and it was a casual conversation, which makes it hilarious, is like, I think we should put a GoPro on the survey plane? I was like, yeah, I suppose we could do that. Whereas 15 years ago, someone's asking, what the heck's a GoPro? Right. So is there something you're most excited about management-wise, kind of either that's in development or that we're currently using? Yeah, so uh, like you just said, the the GoPro is amazing. The imagery that you can put on a plane now, um, you know, I've seen some videos of uh, infrared, you know, military-grade infrared watching mallards feed in a green tree reservoir down in Arkansas at 12 o'clock at night. You know, there's uh, um, some research being done on flying a plane over using the same imagery that you're getting on Google Maps except a finer resolution, and you can start picking out ducks sitting on water and put it into a program, and all of a sudden you can start identifying those birds you can see them diving underneath the water. There's some pretty cool photos from Lake Michigan that you can see some long tails diving underwater, you know, five feet below the surface, but you can still see them. Uh, using drones for looking at uh, nesting, whereas the current way that we search for nests, it's kind of an invasive process. You try and walk through a field and kick these birds up and find their nest, whereas we can use drones again with infrared on it and we just fly over and be like yep bird 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 so we can get an idea there without ever having to kick a bird off a nest you again it's just a resource that is out there it's way less way less you know physical manual labor and it's actually helping the birds is putting less stress and strain on them yeah i think efficiency is key to note in that um, especially being a government agency and really focused on gathering as much data as we can i think you any time that you can find efficiencies, um, absolutely, you got to go for it. So I think drones are a perfect example, too, of some of that monitoring. So you've mentioned, covered the history, covered kind of how management has changed. Um, you've mentioned it a few times, but so where are we at right now? You've mentioned we've had some record highs continentally, but speaking for just Wisconsin, where are we at right now with kind of migratory bird populations? So I 
for Wisconsin, we're super fortunate in that even though we're way at the top of the flyway and we probably have less birds than quite a few other states, we still rank top five in the country for a number of waterfowl hunters. And we are, there's a general decline happening. There's been a 50% decline in number of duck hunters since 1970. So it's happening all the way across the country. In Wisconsin, over the past 10 years, we've seen about a 15, 16% decline in that. However, over the past five years, it's started to go back up. So we are bucking the trend. We, I think because we have such great hunting opportunity and do have the resources available and a long legacy of waterfowl hunting in the state, we, we don't see those declines. Michigan has seen an almost 70% decline in their number of duck hunters since their peak in the 1950s, and we're right next to them, and we're not seeing that occur. Because we spend so much time, waterfowl management in the state of Wisconsin has been a, a continuation of phenomenal, you know, country-renowned scientists and managers that take this time to use the resources to look at what we have. Our mallard populations are near our long-term average, which is what we want to see. Wood ducks, after a really, really low populations in the 60s and 70s, we saw a pretty massive increase, and we've uh, been stabling out as our second highest bird species or duck species in the state at 120,000. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, but we're also seeing a push towards where they're becoming more popular in the bag than a mallard. Yeah, it, it, it's a lot of people don't realize that the state of Wisconsin right now is as forested as it has been since we came to Wisconsin. We inhabited it so again for wood ducks having those natural cavities having all that wood that you know is available these places that were you know traditionally areas of grassland which was farmland or something along those lines that you know mallards and teal would have nested in are starting to grow up and wood ducks are taking advantage of it mm -hmm. and i think both bucking the trend and of of the hunter decline um at least less than than the rest of the country and that that forested point that you made really speaks to kind of the resilience of both hunters and not just hunters, anyone who has a passion for the outdoors. Um, we'll talk about citizen science a little later. Uh, we've already talked about those partner groups and we'll touch a little bit more on their role as we move forward, but really just how, how much buy-in there is from the public, uh, specifically for waterfowl in the state. I, would, I think it's safe to say that we have one of the more engaged out of the huntable species in Wisconsin, I think, waterfowl here that's just about as much engagement as you're going to get from a specific hunting community. Yeah truly passionate it's a passionate group of people that are, are willing to to spend their time and you know get up each morning willing to walk through the muck willing to jump in a boat willing to get everything that they can get together just for the chance that they might might get a bird mm -hmm. you know it they really do love it. And we also want to want to talk about too that the the management, uh, kind of the opportunities, it's not just for hunting. We really can't stress that enough. Um, people, I've seen plenty of people out and waiters in the marsh with just a camera. They're in the boat with just a camera. They're, they're finding new spots. So can you guys talk about maybe, you mentioned there's, there's a lot of birds um, and we're, we're not seeing quite as steep a decline in hunters as other states, but what is it? What's the quality of the opportunity look like to, to pursue waterfowl in Wisconsin as far as opportunity to hunt, access, things like that? There's, you know, we're at 20 years of 60-day duck seasons and six birds in the bag. Um, you know, that kind of gets back to the breeding populations being at an all-time high. 
but you know it's we have you know like taylor said um 15,000 lakes in wisconsin we have you know lake michigan mississippi river all of those create countless large you know tracts of land that are available to hunting but i you know wildlife areas you know we did a waterfowl hunter survey and we had 198 unique unique public land access areas that just came up through a random hunter survey to about you know just under 3,000 hunters mm -hmm. and we have roughly 80,000 80, hunters so you know almost 200 unique places in Wisconsin out of 80,000 I'm sure we didn't even come close yeah. to all the areas well then you you throw in the Great Lake too and you're, exactly. you're really talking so it's something we say a lot for deer is we always give this stat of, of how many million acres of public lands we have and how many hunters there are and a common complaint that I hear is oh, I don't hunt public land anymore it's too crowded there's too many people out there and I to me, that argument just does not hold any water because there is a spot for everyone. You got to scout, look at maps. We're going to have an, a DNR app coming out this fall that's going to help with a lot of that. So just really encouraging whether you're new to hunting um, or you maybe might have that feeling that it's too crowded, find a new spot. There's a spot out there. Um, that's something we're going to keep touching on too is just how fun it is to try a new spot too, whether you're scouting it early season um, or just or just winging it. So our, our survey results show that a, a person scouts more than three times, they're likely to shoot twice as many birds as a person that doesn't scout. So I can't emphasize enough is get out there. It, we all like to be outdoors. Why not go outdoors and check to see how you can make an experience even better, a little bit you know easier later in the year. It, I really do recommend it. Mm -hmm. So we mentioned, too, in the segment uh, where you're kind of talking about what a day in the life looks like and some of the survey work that, that you help out with. So I want you to talk about just in Wisconsin and then also how it interplays with um, the federal agency, too, and other states in the flyway. And I'll have you explain what a flyway is. But So how do we monitor waterfowl populations? So can you kind of explain in detail what, what goes into that? Because I think people here... Someone say, well, we've got millions of ducks, and they're like, how the heck do you know that? Like, you're not counting every duck out there, and you're like, oh, we got a million and three this year. So, Yeah, so there's a, a survey that our spring waterfowl survey in Wisconsin reflects uh, a similar waterfowl survey that's been conducted since the 50s at a continental scale in which they fly large tracts of land all the way across the U.S. and Canadian uh, provinces that... We, we count the birds, we see, we do an estimate per these tracks and extrapolate that number across, you know, larger bodies of water or larger bodies of land. And again, we, it's been pretty, pretty consistent. We, we're not telling you that there are, you know, 7 million mallards out there. We don't know if that's exactly right. But when you look at things as trends over time, you can sit and be like, well, yeah, this one's pretty good compared to the last couple of years. Or, man, the last 10 years have been great compared to the 40 that was before that. So at a that's at a continental scale. In Wisconsin, we do the same thing. Um, our information that we collect, we, we, we did our survey similar to the continental one because we submit our mallard breeding estimate to the Fish and Wildlife Service as part of their estimate for the mid-continent mallard population, which 
specifically tells the Mississippi Flyway, which is again the group of states that basically track along the Mississippi River, and which is the flyway that we know that our birds that we rely on and that we manage use. So the midcontinent mallard population goes into telling us, along with wetland counts, can we have a 60-day season? Can we have a 45-day season? Is it a 30-day season? Six ducks in the bag? How many of spe you know what species? Is can we have two pintails or two canvasbacks? It's We've been fortunate, as Trent said, 21, 22 years in a row now, we've been at a 60-day season, which is the maximum allowed at a federal level, which is unprecedented. Just We've had a 20-year wet cycle, and bird numbers are super high, wetland numbers are super high, and at Wisconsin, we, we can take advantage of that because although we're not necessarily shooting all the birds that are sitting out there in the Canadian prairies, we haven't had really an impact at a from a 60-day season, we can't really tell that, oh, well, all of a sudden now all of our populations are down because we're, we're hunting them too hard. That doesn't seem to be occurring. Mm -hmm. So is a flyway then, to backtrack a little bit, is that essentially a corridor that the same group of ducks are traveling up and down? Or how would you describe that maybe to someone who's not familiar with what a flyway is? Sure. Yeah, we have four flyways within the, within the country. So there's the Atlantic Flyway, so along the East Coast, starting in Maine goes all the way down to Florida and then shifts to um, our flyway, which is the Mississippi flyway, which is the Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin's all the way down to Alabama, Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi. AKA like the Mecca of yeah, duck hunting. Right. So, so we're in the good one, we it are, sounds like. We have, the Mississippi flyway has 50% of all of the hunters in our one flyway alone for the entire country. So we, that's why our seasons, that's a big misconception is how come the Central Flyway, which is the North Dakotas and the Texases, where they have a lot of birds, how come they can shoot a hundred, or you know, or their season is you know, 15 days longer than ours? It's because they have less people. Their season can be longer because their hunters are going to have less of an impact on those bird populations. So it all comes down to expected harvest, essentially. Right. Okay. So I, yeah, I thought that was a really good explanation of a flyway. I, as you were as you were talking about that, I thought people may have. May have questions about that, but I think that did a really good job of, of, of explaining it. So, does speaking of the Texas and North Dakota issue, so say another state that was bordering Wisconsin in a flyway um, really had a huge harvest one year. Does does harvest in other states and hunter participation, does that have the ability to affect what may be available to us for seasons, or is it more locally based than that? For us, it would be more local. Again, we're at the we're at the top of the flyway. So north of us is Ontario, Canada, which has relatively few hunters. So nothing happening north of us is going to have, you know, at a hunter level, hunter participation and harvest is going to have really an impact on what we would see coming into Wisconsin. Maybe in some of the central states in the flyway, but by the time they get down to the south, they're drawing on millions of birds from dozens of states and. Canadian provinces that you're not going to really see and that's the whole point of waterfowl management is that hunters should not be having an impact on these population levels. We're taking advantage of these additional resources that we, we're not here to drive the populations down. That's not what we want to do. And we can track that using banding recoveries and that gives us, uh, um, you know, take and uh, you know, are we taking too many hens? Are we taking too many, or you know, mm -hmm. 
just numbers in general. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's what our banding is actually for now. It's not to track those migration patterns mm -hmm. anymore. That's, you know, that's kind of like we were talking about old research now. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, what are, you know, yeah. It's our, our harvest rate. It yeah. looks exactly at harvest rates and... It, and that's we monitor that every single year when, when I go to our flyway meetings and we sit down and we're like, well, we were hitting adult hens really hard. Is this an anomaly? If this is something that's occurring and continues to occur, we'll take steps to be like, well, let's lower the bag limit for maybe on hens because mm -hmm. we want those hens to be the ones that are reproducing and providing birds every mm -hmm. fall. So. so I think we should definitely get into banding, but first I just wanted to wrap something up with surveys. So... A question that I had when I'm looking at these photos is there do you guys have software to kind of measure ducks in a photo because you're not going through with a magnifying glass and counting each one so or maybe you are I have no idea I hope not that's no that's the way though technology is going currently it's two people sitting in the back of a plane and we have a voice recorder and we fly over a 30 mile stretch and pair of mallards three Canada geese that's how we do it, and we record it into our voice recorder, and I'll go and transcribe that onto uh, into Excel, and then we take it to our computer programmers, and then they will run those numbers, conduct an analysis. But per what you're saying, we're getting there. That's ideally because there's there's human error when when something like this happens. Is is an extra windy day in the plane, or is it cloudy versus sunny, versus the technology now is we can attach a camera to the bottom of a plane and just take photos and there is they're they're not quite there yet and some some you know species mallards we can really do a good job on our you know large concentrations of sea ducks we can do a pretty good estimation the programs out there to identify both species and numbers but when we start getting into certain hens a ringneck hen versus a scop hen you know the, the the information's not quite there yet but that's where we're going cuz then we get a really good accurate representation of what's actually out there. But what we've been doing is the same thing we've kind of been doing for the last 60 years, and it's worked. So do you guys receive special training if you see a really big group of ducks? Is there a way that you can kind of deduct how many birds may be in a certain group? Or, or how do you do that? It, so there is like a training course on like a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and basically what they, they tell you to do is pick out a group of birds that say, let's just say that it's 100 birds in a group. Well, you can count 10 and then you place, okay, that, those 10 birds took up this much space. And then you basically take that square or whatever shape it is and cover the whole group. And that's how you get your, and you know, you say, well, I could fit 10 groups of 10 in that. Mm -hmm. It's, it it's all takes time. Yeah. Uh, we I flew Green Bay last year, and, uh, you know, when you get a flock of 2,000 or 3,000 scop or golden eye that get up, if that's your first time, you're going to be like, oh, man, I have, I don't know. But, again, it we have really great staff that does it. The Mississippi River has been doing fall migration surveys over there, and when you have... Know, at any point in time, a third to half of the continental canvasback population on those pools where they're counting 50, 60, 70,000 birds in a day, that's what they train for. Yep, mm -hmm. Absolutely. And as Trent said, there's an aerial waterfowl observation guide that you can find online and it lets you go through a three-second clip 
of all of these birds and then you had to guess how many you've seen because in most cases we're flying at 120 miles an hour mm-hmm. and trying to trying to make that estimate but so does that mean that you guys are really good at those uh things where they have a jar full of jelly beans and <laughs> oh, be like nice. I'm asking for a friend and I'm just <laughs> like, so there may be a, a side business for you guys in yeah. there you may be able to use that formula so let's move on to banding so I think that was a really good overview of surveys and I think the thing to remember there is these people complete training they're working super hard to get it right um, and they are getting it right so I, th- I think that's the one thing to keep in mind and just think about how crazy it is um, that we've got people up in planes counting ducks for an entire state. I think that's pretty wild. So do you guys want to maybe give an overview? Trent, you mentioned banding and kind of the goals of banding and the data we're getting maybe changing. So, so what is banding and why do we do it? Yeah, so again, uh, banding is done so we can collect harvest rates off these birds. And what is banding, I guess? Oh, I guess we yeah, never even so heard. yeah, let's... Let's kind of explain that. So uh, USGS and uh, the Bird Banding Lab um, put out aluminum bands uh, every year. Um, they kind of distribute them throughout the, the breeding areas and along with you know some of the wintering sites where they band. But uh, aluminum uh, bands um, with a specific number and a web address to report those uh, numbers and you can track these birds from uh, basically their first year um, all the way until they are harvested by a hunter. Or, you know, even you could be walking through a park and see a goose with a band on it. And if you can, can get close enough at your own, at at your your own, own risk, risk, they are mean. Or, you know, t- with binoculars or anything like that, you could, you could look up that bird and report that bird. And, you, you know, all of a sudden you saw, you know, a three-year-old Canada goose that's probably used that same area for the past two years. Maybe he was even born there. Um, Taylor was up on um, up on uh, Akaminsky Island, yeah, Hudson, right? Hudson Bay. Hudson Bay, and he saw a collared goose. And we haven't put collars on snow geese since uh, two thousand. Yeah, two thousand. So that bird was at least sixteen years old. Um, it. That, it's just the, the amount of information, you know, Trent was doing an analysis on, analysis on it and showing that I think the oldest mallard that was harvested in the state of Wisconsin was 19 years old. So that, can you believe the thousands of miles that that bird migrated and made the gauntlet run mm-hmm. for almost 20 years? We, I think one was uh, harvested in, was it Nova Scotia? No, it, Iceland? Iceland, yeah. Iceland. We had a mallard that was banded here in Wisconsin. So that's the kind of information we use it particularly here um, with regard to management level decisions that we know that mallards shot in the state of Wisconsin, where they come from based on band recovery. And for our case, 70% of the mallards that are harvested in Wisconsin come from Wisconsin. So from my perspective, my responsibility is, is what can we do to manage this resource because we directly impact that. Mm-hmm. What we do on a ground, what we do maybe during a hunting season, is going to affect how many birds we see each spring and each fall. So using those band recoveries to, to tell us what work needs to be done and where that work needs to happen. So the question that's probably on a lot of people's minds right now, how do you get a band on a duck or a goose? And I just have a feeling this is going to be pretty interesting. So I don't know which one of you gets the honor of explaining this one. but So how do we, how do we band ducks and geese? So geese, I'll, I'll touch on geese and let Taylor 
Taylor do ducks, but geese, um, they go through an annual molt every year. Um, we're actually coming up on it here probably pretty quick. So an annual molt, what's that? So, uh, so um, they'll lose all their flight feathers. And so they typically do that when they're young or also you know, starting to get an, to an age um, where they also can't fly, but they're getting ready. Um, they're going through a full molt to get all their adult plumage, plumage's feathers. And, uh, and they'll, what we will do is go out and find areas with high concentrations of geese um, that... Walmarts, usually yeah. Walmarts has a lot well, of geese. Well, <laughs> so we want to get, we want to get birds that are going to be available for hunters in the fall. Yeah, not, again, not, so we know if, if we right. put a band on a goose that never leaves the park, we're never going to get any, any information on right. that bird. Right, that's a really good point and something people may not think about. Yep, and so with uh, basically snow fence panels or netted panels or um, really anything that kind of works like a fence, we walk up, corral these geese into um, into a makeshift pen, and uh, and then you band them. And that's, it's kind of like a rodeo sometimes, depending on how many birds you get, but, you know, make sure that there's not too many birds in one pen or anything like that. But um, then managers will uh, sex the bird, um, age the bird on whether or not it's a, an adult or a juvenile, and then uh, put a band on the bird and send it on, send it on its way. With, with regard to ducks, it's, it's much more, you can many different ways to do it and for Canada geese it, it seems to be a pretty easy process you get a lot of volunteers or a lot of workers together and surround them and work your way into you get them in a pen whereas ducks we have cannon and rocket nets which are an area that we put bait over I'm listening yep. <laughs> it sounds cool yep. an area that we put bait down the ducks will work their way in, in the morning and we have a net that's attached to weights that are attached to a cannon or a rocket that we will shoot over the top of these birds. And the net then lays over the top of them, and in some cases we can catch three, four, five hundred of these birds in one shot with limited, you know, impact to the bird because, again, they're, they have hollow bones. They can take, kind of, you know, quite a bit of a movement on something like that, so it doesn't seem to impact the birds hardly at all. We have um, night lighting, which is... Uh, our staff get in boats at night with spotlights and musky nets and musky nets are big. Mm -hmm. yeah. If anyone yeah. was wondering, big nets. Yeah. So we uh, they they'll track them down. Either the adults are again going through their molt, so they can't fly away, or they'll scoop up the young ones right there. The hen stays right with them while they'll put the band on the bird's legs and they let them go, and the family sticks right together. Uh, we have walk-in traps, which are you know put bait inside a. A pen, I'm trying to think. So there's a funnel at one end, and uh, the birds, you know, get used to walking in the doors when you leave them open, and then when you close the doors, they find the funnel, and then when they walk in the funnel, it's the, the trap is set up to not have any really true corners, and the bird can't, just they can't, can't figure, figure it out. out. Can't mm -hmm. figure out how to how to get out. And been there. <laughs> all of these all these work. Like I said, Wisconsin is has a great banding program, and we've been doing it for decades. And like I said, if you're banding close to ten thousand birds a year, we we get our staff are really creative in how how we can best 
capture these birds and get these bands on there because that that's what we use that information for is management decisions and i think the biggest thing too is that taylor mentioned is it doesn't harm the harm the bird so we're getting data and it's not putting these birds at risk and it there's no there's no disadvantage in the wild either yeah. as far as something that may hinder their ability to fly or yeah, properly properly put on bands. You, you close the aluminum band around its leg so there's no opening. So things like a fishing net or fishing line could get in there and get caught. And in those cases, that's why it's really important. The bird banding lab and all of our staff take pride in making sure that we have very little handling time on these birds because they get stressed out. This is a stressful situation. So what can we do to process the birds as quickly as possible? while also making it as you know, efficient and properly banded because nobody wants to let one of these birds go and know mm -hmm. that it's not going to make it. That's exactly, and that's that's on the front of staff's minds too, I know, as they're, as they're working with these things. So aerial surveys, banding, uh, we talked about population data and how Wisconsin fits into that, that bigger picture in the flyway. Um, so another thing I wanted to touch on and and on our Facebook page, this is a uh, popular area of contention. I'm not going to say anyone's wrong or right, but there are a lot of opinions. So Wisconsin, um, and I don't know if this is unique, I don't think it is, but so with different zones, periods, and splits. So can you talk about that and, and what those terms mean and, and why, they, why we have them? So again, this comes down to what's allowed at a federal level. Um, we, we have this discussion for zones, um, which the Fish and Wildlife Service say that you can have up to, if, well, step back, they're allowed to have one zone if we want to have no splits. So basically no splits means you can't extend the season, you can't take some time off in the middle of a 60-day season and then extend it for however long you decide to take it off. So we're allowed to have, uh, we could have no or one zone with two splits, two zones with one split, three zones with one split, or four zones with no splits. And again, what zones are is just, we can alter the hunting season dates, um, but it has to be a unique opportunity per those zones. So for example, we have a south, a north, and a Mississippi River zone. We traditionally had the north and the south because we know that Ashland, Wisconsin is not the same as Racine and Kenosha. Yeah, you're talking flooded timber, big water, that type of thing. Just so, temperature. Yeah. Yep. I mean, typically in the northern part of the state, they may not actually see 60 days of hunting because some of the bodies and the bodies of water and marshes are froze at that point in time and all the birds have gone out. Mm -hmm. Whereas you could be hunting in the southern tier of counties in the state well past that 60 days. So we have to try and create these opportunities at a statewide level that most hunters can take advantage of. And we, we added the Mississippi River Zone in 2011 because it is a huge resource and it's unique. There's different bird movement that is happening on the Mississippi River. And we have these discussions every five years that come up and we can we can change it. We, I, we ask the public, this is absolutely public driven. Do we, if you don't want um, if you want to change the zone structure because you think, oh man, there's more hunting opportunity in this part of the state, they're not using what their zone is meant for, let us know. Let me know, or else I'm going to go to I go to public meetings. I have these surveys. Trent and I take, Trent takes hundreds of phone calls, and please let us know because I can't change a regulatory decision 
based on just what Taylor Finger wants to do. That is. Mm -hmm. So is it is it unique to have splits and, and that type of thing? Um, do other states have that too, those options? So is that something that the Fish and Wildlife Service offers every state? Yeah, yep. Like I said, the, the zone breakdown structure, the one, two, three, four zones is a Mississippi flyway uh, zone structure that we are allowed to do. Some of the states to our east and our west and those in the central and Atlantic flyways have a little bit different, but this was what was agreed on within our flyway. And so, so again, to explain a split, we close the season uh, the second week for five days in the south zone because there is a desire for hunters to be able to hunt ducks into December. We only get 60 days of hunting. So if we decide to take days off and say nobody hunts those, we can add those five days on the tail end. And that's, that's always the big contentious issue is, do we want to take off five days of hunting in October to add them in December when there may be less birds around or there may be less people hunting? But when we go to our public meetings and we ask for public feedback, this is the information that we do get that there is that desire. So is five the largest number that can be taken off? Or? No, we, uh, we had, it was 11 days on the Mississippi River um, for their first couple of years. They took 11 days off in October and added it to the end. We have right now a split that will be going on in 2018 and the Canada Goose season. We'll have two splits during that where we take off, I believe it's like 14 days. And then the Canada Goose season this year will now go over Christmas and New Year's. So, again, that, that was a decision that very few people are hunting in early December. We can take days off in early December and put it during a time period where maybe kids are coming home from college or families are coming home and say, well, let's take advantage of this hunting opportunity depending on weather conditions, whether or not they'll be able to get out there and do it. But, yeah, we, we have those discussions every single year. So can you kind of touch on the role of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service? So for people listening who may not be familiar, it's a federal agency, United States Fish and Wildlife Service. So, so what is their role? They're kind of the umbrella that we're all under as far as kind of limitations that we may have for season structure. As I said, they, they are the ones that, you know, they have to follow the federal legislation that dictates what we can do for having actual hunting seasons on migratory birds. So we do get together, as, like, as I said, the flyway technical section, we help to advise the Fish and Wildlife Service on what we think is the best way to use or manage the resource within our area. However, the Fish and Wildlife Service has final say on absolutely everything. The hunting seasons, the, the state of Wisconsin can't go rogue and say we're going to have 85 days of hunting because at a federal level that will be illegal. Mm -hmm. So what the Fish and Wildlife Service do is saying, this is your parameters. Based on wetland numbers and duck counts, you're allowed to have 60 days. That has to occur between the Saturday nearest September 24th and the Saturday nearest January 31st. At this point, it's up to you. You do your work with your public that says, when do you want to have a hunting season? And then that's where Trent and I go in. We talk to our biologists, hey, what are you guys hearing in your neck of the woods? We hold our public hearings. We ask for feedback we're working on surveys to say this is what we got what do you guys want and again the, the the important thing that we have we every single year we hear this is you know this is what a real duck hunter wants this is what a real duck hunter wants is we have to recognize that there are 80,000 duck hunters out there and each one of them buys a duck stamp so we have to put a season out there that represents the most amount of opportunity for the most amount of people. Mm -hmm. We recognize there's awesome hunting opportunities and 
mid-December or late December when there's everything's froze up and there's thousands of birds piling in this one spot and this is the most memorable duck hunting thing that you're ever going to happen but you are going to be 0.01% of the people actually hunting during that time period mm -hmm. whereas if we have you know when the season's opened up in first part of October that's when everyone's hunting people are thinking now I'm going to duck hunt do most people move on to something else by early to mid-November probably but again, we have to manage this for some, for eighty thousand people rather than just one or two. Yeah, there's a certain other wildlife species <laughs> with horns that <laughs> tends to take precedence in November. I'm not even going to say its name, but you can probably, you could probably guess what that is. And just maybe in thirty seconds, you mentioned the duck stamp. So what is the duck stamp? So uh, we have a state and a federal duck stamp. The state duck stamp is a seven dollar fee that you have to purchase during uh, or in order to hunt ducks and geese in, in Wisconsin. And what that does is that funding goes directly into, uh, two-thirds of it goes into ma maintaining all of our wetland and wildlife area, our infrastructure, as well as enhancing wetlands, protecting wetlands. That's what two-thirds of that money goes to, which is about $350,000 a year based on that. And the other one-third goes to the Canadian prairies that we send up there doing habitat work because we know birds come. That's where all the birds are produced is on the Canadian prairies, and then they migrate into a state. So it would make no sense for us to put all of our money here in Wisconsin when we ignore where the birds are actually going to be coming from. Absolutely. So when you're, when they tell you, they ask you if you want to buy a federal state duck stamp. So obviously if you're duck hunting, you're going to have to, but that just hopefully will give you some perspective on, on what that those funds are going towards. So, and you mentioned maintenance of habitat and things like that. So I think that's a good segue to... Maybe talk about the role that, that some partner groups, in particular in Wisconsin, the role that they may play for, for instance, a, a Ducks Unlimited, a Delta. So can you talk about maybe how you and other DNR staff work with those partners and kind of the important role that they play? Yeah, we have very active uh, Delta, Ducks Unlimited, Wisconsin Waterfall Association chapters that thousands of people participate in this. They're putting money towards something that they truly are passionate about. And then not just money, it's volunteer hours. They get out there, and right now it's a big thing is you can have, if you have a group and you want to adopt a wildlife area, which you can say, I want to, I want to meet wildlife area. This is what I'm really passionate about. This is where I spend my time. I'm willing to donate 20 hours a season, 30 hours a season to get out there and check wood duck boxes or help mow or do something along those lines because that's what this is what I'm passionate about this is what I want to spend my time doing because this is what I enjoy uh, that that's directly working with with those chapters to get out there and do that they they are on all of our planning committees they're at at our advisory committees helping us design these surveys because they represent thousands of hunters they represent thousands of people that are interested in these conservation and management activities so having them sit at a table and helping us make those decisions is, is essential. And I, I really don't think you can overstate the importance of the monetary aspect, the social aspect, um, kind of how well that our staff work with them. And kind of it's important to know at the end of the day we all want the same thing. So I think that really helps when everyone's at the table too. So transitioning now, something I like to talk about in almost every podcast we have is the intersection of the sociology of management and the biology of management. So you mentioned with the splits and things like that, it's up to the hunters. So ducks, I think, is really unique in the sense that I think more so than other species, it's really driven by 
kind of hunter input. Not that we don't get it for other species, but I think it's incredibly important important with migratory bird game birds. So can you can you talk about maybe the the challenges uh, or maybe what makes it all worth it in the end? Um, kind of the the social aspect of managing migratory game birds. So um, this is something that any wildlife professional they they got into this job not necessarily thinking that they would be answering phone calls or answering emails or going to public meetings but it is what I found is one of the most important things that I do in my job and what Trent does in his job is we communicate with people that are you know they have a lot of money tied up in this a lot of investment tied up in this this is something that they're truly passionate about and the decisions that we make really impact what they're going to see at, at the end of the year so we try to cover I mean I have probably a dozen public meetings that happen um, throughout December and into March that I try to get out. I feel like I reach thousands, at least thousands of people, whether it's talking with the conservation groups, the Wildlife Federation, the Conservation Congress, just trying to get an idea of what people what people want because we, we've had 60-day seasons. We have had uh, a point now that there's a whole generation of hunters that haven't experienced any change in duck hunting whereas you know the the older folks the older generation of hunters are like i i went through 30 day seasons i went through 45 day seasons what you guys have is great but the new generation of hunters are well we need more we need more i mean there's nothing's changed in the last 20 years and that's that's the difficult part is trying to get those two people to sit at the same table and say this is what we need to do this is or this is what you want this is what I want how do we create a hunting season that can reflect both desires mm -hmm. and I think that's really interesting and I think that ties in too with kind of how technology has changed you see the positives like uh, the survey work things like that and certainly technology social media can be a positive um, it can also be kind of the dark underbelly of uh, of the human psyche I think we see sometimes with with some of the comments that we get but um, so where we're at right now with hunting, wildlife watching, you mentioned we're kind of bucking the trend um, and seeing a little less decrease than some of the other states are seeing, but I don't want to, I'm not going to ask for hunting overall because I think that's a separate podcast in itself, but what do you think might be the limiting factors to someone looking to get into duck hunting? What, what might be the barrier? I'll let Trent kind of touch on it here, but I think it's how... How we, as as a group of hunters, are, we're branded. I mean, anytime now we're opening up a, a Cabela's book and there's a guy that's sitting there with a $200 worth of six decoys or he's got the most expensive waders on or, you know, you, you can't hunt unless you have a beard and you're trudging through the ice, uh, it, it's really not that difficult. And, again, Trent being relatively new compared to, you know, somebody that spent 20 years hunting, whereas... You, you had to get into it. You're, I started I'm, from nothing. Yeah, I'm, I'm a poor college kid that how can I do this and still make it work? Any and, movie producer listening, this is true rags to riches story. <laughs> yeah, so like, you know, I, I kind of told you my, how I came to be a duck hunter. Um, and it was just, okay, we need, we need six, you know, 12 decoys. That's, that's what we'll start with. And it turned out we split the decoys when... We parted ways, and you know the next step was well. Okay, I need more decoys. Well, I don't have the money to buy, you know, some of these, some of these decoys that are, you know, a hundred to hundred fifty dollars for um, 
six. So I went on to a, you know, Facebook, I used social media and I said, um, I'm looking, I, you know, I just got into this. Does anybody have de like old decoys that they're not using anymore? Maybe they're laying around in the garage and does any, would anybody help me out? And within 30 minutes, I had five guys from across the state say, Hey, I have something that you could have, or, you know, I could, I'll sell you some, some decoys. Um, and, but the thing is, is a lot of people think that you need decoys. You really just need a shotgun and a stream nearby and, you know, public land. Like we said, there's access everywhere and you can shoot just as many ducks as somebody sitting on green Bay. You won't see as many, but you can shoot the same amount, mm -hmm. you know, and you can just walk up that stream and you're sure to jump woodies, mallards, teal, you know, at any time of the year. It's, it's just, like I said, it's a perception that everyone feels like, oh, nah, man, I have to have all the correct gear. I have to have all of this where... In a boat, in yeah, a mud yeah. motor, yeah. and all that. <laughs> no, you need a canoe and a gun, and that's, that's just about it. You can have just as... If you do your scouting, you spend the time to do this, you don't need very much equipment to be successful. I think the thing is, though, most of the guys that I see that shoot the most ducks are the people that do the homework. And they know at a very basic level where ducks want to be and where they need to be to shoot ducks or to take photos of ducks or anything, however you want to interact. Yeah, it, it, again, it's just it's one of those things where I've, I've hunted with people that have just everything's jerry-rigged together. They're carrying stuff that put together with burlap, and, it, it, and they're good. They, they're very good at what they do, and they know how, how to hunt. They, you don't need to go out there and drop $1,000 at Cabela's to get ready to go, to go hunting. That's mm -hmm. not what you need to do. I think the, the best thing that I ever learned when I, was growing, or when I was learning how to duck hunt was if you know where the ducks want to be, you don't, one, you don't, it doesn't matter what kind of decoy you put out there, you could probably put milk jugs out there. And the, if the ducks want to be there, you're probably going to harvest some birds or at least get the opportunity to. Yeah. Yeah. And there are so many resources out there with the internet, with YouTube, with our website. Uh, we're hoping to do more podcasts. So there's tons of great books ranging yeah. from the really old outdoor writers to today. So they're the wealth of opportunity to learn more about this. And I think it's a sport that after your first time, you're, you're going to know whether you like it or not. And I think more often than not, certainly people become hooked. Yeah, we, um, we really we really are out there. Just take one person out. You know, if, if, that's, if you really enjoy doing this, and you, it doesn't have to be a kid. It can be a co-worker that's, man, I never had the opportunity to hunt when I was a kid. It looks all right. Take him out. Take her out. It'll, even even if they don't have a gun. Yeah, just uh, just get them out there because I mean, sitting in the marsh and you got twenty birds that fly over and right at sun sunrise, it's gonna be one of those things where like, oh man, that was exciting. I didn't mm -hmm. do anything, but it was it was a blast. And some of the other stuff you see too, you're not just gonna see ducks. There's plenty of other stuff to to see in the marsh. So absolutely. So before we wrap up here, one thing I like to ask too is. Um, Maybe one thing you could tell someone, we kind of touched on it, someone who may not have ever had an opportunity to, to hunt migratory game birds, but what's something you could tell someone you may not know anything about maybe what you guys do um, and migratory game birds in general? One thing, I'm, like, 
just the the amount the amount of birds that are that are out there that people just they can't comprehend where the Mississippi River is sitting there with hundreds of thousands of birds each fall that whether you're a hunter whether you're a bird watcher whether you're a photographer take a couple hours make a trip over there and you're going to see tundra swans that you know we only see for a short period of the year but there's thousands of them that's over there canvasbacks which are one of the lower number of birds that we have in the you know population wise in the country and almost half of them come through the mississippi river green bay has you know hundreds of thousands of birds sitting out there sea ducks ducks that nest all the way up in the canadian arctic that come down and we can see thousands of them just offshore just Take the opportunity. They're out there if you're willing to put some time in it. Mm-hmm. Trent? I, you know, kind of touching on what Taylor had talked about, I'll, you know, I'll kind of tell a little story from this year. I made my first trip out to Mississippi River, and uh, one of my buddies took me out and on his boat. And we didn't, you know, we didn't see much all day. And, but, you know, they have huge refuges for those birds to, to hang out, and they do a phenomenal job because when the sun went down and we pulled our decoys, the amount of birds they make you feel that, stupid. that came back from the refuge and landed at my feet in the, in, on the Mississippi River took, I, it was one of those moments where you stop and it didn't matter what we took home, that took my breath away, seeing that many birds come back, you know, and I didn't think that there were that many birds around. Mm-hmm. Making that connection, it's one of those things where everyone that's had a great hunting day and they're done for the day or even they had a poor hunting day and it's after hours, they're going to remember thousands of birds piling into there. And that's going to be the story that they're going to tell. Like, oh, yeah, we had a good day, but you should have seen all of these birds that we didn't shoot, we didn't hunt, and we were just as happy mm-hmm. not doing it because that's the experience. That's why we're in this job is yep. to manage for that one moment to be like, this is awesome. Mm-hmm. And I think the one thing I would say is um, try to keep perspective. And I, I don't mean to always connect things to deer hunting, but I think there is a connection here that people get blinded by expectation. A successful deer hunt isn't necessarily a 160-inch deer. And I, I don't think that should be anyone's expectation. Surely it is people's expectation, but the things that we've talked about today, and I'll connect it to duck hunting, is there is so much more to duck hunting than than shooting a duck. Yeah. Same with goose. It's just the other things that happen out there, being with a dog, being with friends, um, getting out of the office for a day and things like that. So I just it's just important, like you hear them talk about how lucky Wisconsin is with the, the continuation of the, the 60 day seasons, the amount of ducks we have here, uh, the public land opportunities. We've got a great lake, we've got the Mississippi River. Um, there's not a state above us, which is unique in the flyway. Uh, so, I mean, I, I just think it's important to keep perspective, and that's really what we're trying to do with these podcasts is um, we've said it from the start. Uh, we, don't, we don't ask you to agree with every decision that we make, but we want to give you the tools to learn more um, and to know why a decision was made and how it was made and know exactly what your role can be um, if you so choose to become involved in those management decisions. So do you guys, any of you guys have any closing thoughts here before we get going? 
I, I can't overemphasize, and we Trent and I really worked on this this year. He updated our webpage so it's much more accessible, much more user-friendly. We're working using social media, doing podcasts, doing Facebook Live kind of events. Is Get involved. Get This is hunting seasons, as I said, are driven by our hunters. A lot of these decisions are very little goes into it with regard to you know, our pop because our populations are doing so well that it's not we're not so concerned about that. It's what works for you. And if we don't hear from hunters, we're just gonna keep doing the same thing that we've always done or the same, you know, fifty people that go to all the meetings know how it works and that their voice is gonna be the one that's being heard. Mm-hmm. We we did that this year where we reached out, we had you know, using email and using social media and we had such a high percentage of comments come in from people that had never commented before, which means we're using these tools to reach out to a whole different subset of people that we never inter- interacted with. And that's what we're going to con- try and continue to do because th- those are those are the people that, that we want to hear from. And we, we do hear from the, the old crowd, the crowd that knows how the process works. But some of these people don't know how it works. And... That, we're just trying to use this new technology to get out and mm-hmm. reach those folks. Trent? Yeah, uh, Taylor took basically what I was going to say. When I, you know, I, I was the point of contact for everyone who wanted to comment on the season this year. And I remember the, the first email that I got, not, um, but uh, the first email that mentioned it, I remember walking over to Taylor and said, you know, this guy just said that you know, thanks for finally taking my input on this. And you're like, oh, that we've been doing this for so long that, you know, and just people, you know, had no, people didn't know know that this was that, you know, we've been doing this for decades. And that this guy said, wow, it's finally great that you're doing this. So, you know, we got to do better work on our end to reach out to these people and be like, this has been a process that you can be part of and could have been part of for a long time. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm trying to keep the most up-to-date information on our website. You know, you and I are working together on press releases. and uh, you know, So what Facebook. is the website? Let's, let's point people there before we... Yeah, so here. if you go to the DNR uh, homepage and type in waterfowl, uh, you'll be led to our, our page where I put a lot of our, um, the surveys, the hunter surveys that we were talking about, that's where you can find results and see what what other hunters around the state are saying. Um, that's where we put our proposal this year. That's where videos are going to be put. Um, We're working on a document that it's going to be just an all-encompassing document for the novice hunter that says this is what you, Trent, put a ton of time into this. Is This is what you need to do in order to duck hunt. You know, do you need a dog? No. But if you do want a dog, this is what you can do. If, do you need a boat? No. But if you get a boat, this is what you can do. Here's all of the license that you need. Here's some techniques to learn how to duck call. Here, if you if you get a bird, how do you breast it out? How you know how do you process this? So there's just such a great amount of resource sitting on our webpage that I, I really encourage anybody that you know is just well, it's you know June. It's not not necessarily hunting season, but we're starting to think about it now. Just touch base on that. Mm-hmm. Our regulations are on there. Uh, another thing is, um, I'll just give it a little, is our wing shooting course. You know, we, you know, everyone in the blind misses sometimes. I've and some missed. people miss more than others. I've never missed one. <laughs> yeah. And uh, 
the DNR uh, puts on these wing shooting courses that, you know, even Taylor and I took it last year in some of the stuff that they, you know, say in there that, you know, a duck that you may miss has, you know, yeah. If, if you just, you know, you saw some feathers fly, you saw, oh, I just scratched that one and flies away, 90% of the time that bird's going to die. So what this course is doing is making you a better shotgunner. Ethical. Yep, okay. yep. Just so that, you know, that's what we want to do. There's not a single hunter out there that likes to shoot a bird and not retrieve it. Mm -hmm. Not one. It's just, it's a feeling that you get in the pit of your stomach that you're like, man, that... So this this wing shooting course is phenomenal. $25, go through extensive training on how to pattern your gun, shoot thousands of clay targets, how to shoulder your gun, how to have a follow-through, all to make you a more ethical, a better shotgunner. And I can't, again, being a person that's been hunting for quite some time, I walked away and my hunting season was all the better for it. Mm -hmm. And I think you can find that on Go Wild. Is that under like the training section? Yep. On Go Wild? I think it's Advanced yep. Shotgunning. Advanced right. Shotgunning. You can also get there through our website. I have a link um, through the additional resources. There's a wing shooting link, and it will take you to the wing shooting page where you can learn more about it. And then that, that page will also can lead you to the Go Wild. Perfect. So be sure to check that out. That, that makes hunting even more accessible. Um, you don't have to necessarily know someone to bug them to take you out. You've got these other resources. So I guess my closing thought would just be a quick one, um, just a reminder that management isn't free. So we talk about the state and federal duck stamps, we talk about the partners, all the work we do, volunteers, uh, the people who are going to these meetings. So just another thank you to everyone who's been involved. We encourage more people to get involved. Um, sitting with these guys at the table, I've hunted with them, I know them personally. There's not two guys, there's not two other guys that you'd want kind of leading this program. I think they are that perfect mix of the the social aspect and the and the biology of all of it. So you should you should know that the program's in good hands. I encourage you to give these guys a call. Uh, they're great to talk to. They'll answer your questions. So so thanks for joining us. As a reminder, you can find um, this podcast and tons of other ones. We've done one on wolves, one on wild turkeys. So to go to dnr.wi.gov, which is our website, and search keywords wild Wisconsin. You can find it on our YouTube channel, which is WIDNR-TV, our iTunes channel, which is Wild Wisconsin Off the Record, and then always uh, check out our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter pages. Uh, we do Facebook Lives specifically with the Duck Guys quite a bit, uh, so you're going to find more photos, videos. You can interact with us directly there, so uh, thanks for joining us. Stay tuned. I hope to have Taylor and Trent on for another one, and other than that, we will see you next time.